Before we open the Bible and I preach this morning, I'm going to invite our uh, Sankofa participants to come uh, and join me uh, up here. These are five folks who recently uh, went on the Sankofa journey. If you don't know what that is, you will in just a minute. Could you welcome them up as they come, please? Great, okay. Dennis, could you actually grab those two wireless mics and just hand them to me? I'm not, why do you all have me sitting in the middle? I get to sit down here and people get sick of looking at me. Is David here? One, the man says one second, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we, we will revolve around you, David Douglas. We will, you, you can be the center of the universe here, that is okay. Uh, St. Kofa is a, uh, a, a trip that our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, does on a, uh, t- a two to three times a year, and uh, it's, it's a, a chance to visit civil rights uh, uh, historical places and monuments throughout uh, the South, uh, but it's also a chance to engage in conversations uh, related to race and injustice, and so these folks uh, signed up for the most uh, recent ones of those trips. And um, I asked if they would just take some time to share a little bit uh, with you this morning. This trip very much is in alignment with who we are as a church, uh, uh, what our mission is, what our identity is as a reconciled uh, and reconciling people. Um, So would you guys just quickly go down the line, just introduce yourselves first, let us know who you are. Hi, I'm David. Ramelia. Maggie. Jennifer. Susan. Uh, and so what I've asked is just for them to reflect on a couple different questions. You all decide kind of how you want to answer and in what order. But tell us about one moment during the trip that you will remember, something that you think that years from now will stand out to you, and, and what made that moment especially significant for you? Well, after I took the trip, like I was sick the whole trip, so I wasn't able to talk. Well, I was talking a lot, but my throat was it was horrible. Um, but I had a lot of things built up in my head that I wanted to get out, so I started writing, and it took me about a week, but I ended up getting about 15 pages down, just reflecting on everything. So um, one of the significant moments, I'm just going to read apart from that. Um, so many of the things I saw inside, this was, um, it was used in the Underground Railroad. It was a safe house. So uh, many of the things that I saw inside made me uneasy while others amazed me. As I, walked in, as, I, uh, as I walked in on the left side, there was a glass case. In this case, there were a set of shackles for arms and hands. Um, after I confirmed that these were used on a slave, I gazed through the glass and just looked at them. Thinking about someone having to walk around with these on, work with them on, sleep with them on, it just didn't sit right with me. Probably one of the most conflicting images I came across was on the right wall near the entrance. Displayed were ads to buy slaves. This took me aback. I couldn't imagine opening a newspaper and seeing something like that. I opened a paper today. There are ads for everything under the sun, but a person is out of the question. I can admit that this angered me. I could feel my forehead curling up and my teeth clenching together. The ads sounded like they were selling or looking for pets. One that I can remember right off top read, looking for a hundred good Negroes. Let that sink in. Actually, I will not tell you to do that because I find it difficult to do that myself. 
My uh, most memorable moment, we walked into 16th Street Baptist Church, um, which is where uh, four little girls were, once a bomb hit the church, four little girls were killed. Um, Actually, there were five girls. There's one who is a survivor that we learned. But as we walked into the church, the first thing I noticed and said to Maggie is that um, on the right window, as we walked in, um, stained glass windows in the church, and um, the stained glass window was a picture of the blonde hair, blue-eyed type Jesus. And it angered me because in 2014, is this the image of God um, that African Americans see? Can they not see anything outside of this? And so Maggie and I talked about it and I fussed about it. And then as the, con- as the presentation continued, um, when the bomb hit the church, and this just made Chills go up my spine. When the bomb hit the church, uh, they have a picture that shows you what that stained glass window looked like. And if you took like an exacto knife and cut out the face of Jesus, it's the only part of the image that was destroyed. Um, so the face of Jesus um, somehow burst out of that, of that picture. Um, and so as they continued that presentation, um, they let us know that there was this guy in Wells who was an artist and that he um, heard about um, uh, this horrific thing that happened um, in Alabama. And um, he decided to create um, an image, uh, another stained glass window for the church. And actually, this is a picture of the stained glass window that he made for the church. It's an African-American image of Christ. It has lots of symbolism in it that you can't um, really see because this is just the face of it. But the hand of it kind of like blocks out racism. And then there's another hand that faces this way that kind of welcomes the people of God. Um, There are bullets that are going through the side of Jesus. At the bottom, it says, you have done this unto me. Um, And so just a really moving experience. And so now in the church, when we walk in in 2014, um, another just something that kind of angered me about that picture was always the image there was an image in our own home uh, growing up of that Jesus that I always just didn't like Um, and because it 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 says just in a very subconscious way um, that I am not part of the image of God and so in 2014, when I walked in this church, when they showed us this picture, it was behind our heads, much like this. And so we turned around and I'm like, ah, you know, like, you know, it's amazing. And so then it became not just one or the other, but both and. And so that here is God presenting to me that we're, we're all welcome um, and that we are all um, in the image of God. So that was just just really struck me. Uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, we spent a section of time there, and it was very powerful for me to see a different side of Memphis, um, My and I, I, I stood up on the bus, because we were on a bus the whole time. David didn't mention that. <laughs> two overnights, including two overnights on the bus. Um, <laughs> so it's challenging, but um, we, uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> we were in Memphis, and um, I stood up on the bus at some point and hesitantly admitted to everyone that um, my 
great, great, great grandfather was a man who um, actually <laughs> Jennifer and I discovered she knows she knows some of the same descendants of his as I do. So it's kind of we may be connected in some way in this small little town in Tennessee. But um, he was a plantation owner and owned over two hundred slaves. And I've actually visited his big gravestone and. Um, his last name is my middle name, and so I have this sort of very strong, um, you know, remembrance of of that heritage. And um, sometimes that feels really just shameful to me, and like something I just can't get rid of. And um, so, but it was it was good to be able to kind of stand up and and tell that to this group of people who are half white and half black because everybody is paired together. Um, and and then we visited this, which David was mentioning, we visited in Memphis this place that was called the Slave Haven, which was a German man who had come, moved to Memphis and, and started the successful business, but also had a secret cellar in his basement where he would hide slaves and help them to get on the river and up north to freedom. And um, I think for me this this whole trip was sort of about like the dual experience of some just, you know, horrors that are almost, that are unimaginable that just make your stomach turn, but also experiences of, and reminders of of hope in the midst of it, which for me... um, I think just being on a trip like this and being able to talk and being able to um, be able to kind of confess, I guess, and and still be loved and accepted, but also to see people like this man who risked his life to help people um, escape, and he really did risk his life, um, and he helped a lot of people. The other thing that was really helpful for me, one of the other things, is we visited a um, place called Equal Justice Initiative in Bir- in Birmingham, Montgomery, Montgomery. Montgomery. Um, that's the last thing I'll say. And they um, <clears throat> are a bunch of lawyers who are working on cases of people who are either wrongfully accused or right now what they're talking about a lot is children as young as 11 and 12 who are being um, sentenced to life in prison without parole in adult prisons, which I didn't know anything about this. I knew about some of the things they do, but this was shocking to me. But so again, like horrific, but also so thankful to see that there are people like them investing in these kind of cases. So I'll stop. The most memorable thing to me was also a slave haven and that I learned that my ancestors were brought in a country where they didn't know the language, but they found ways to communicate to each other um, in different ways. And um, I just remember my grandmother always making quilts out of various things, and to learn that those quilts actually were signs and signals for different things. And... um, Things um, I think they said that the the trees and lights and um, and they they use the quilts to um, they would hang one up one for a week so that the slaves could learn what that symbol meant as far as uh, gaining their freedom and then they would switch that quilt out for a different quilt 
which had different signals, different signs on it. And um, they used um, the Negro spirituals as also a way of, of teaching um, the slaves that want to gain their freedom uh, how to gain their freedom. Um, and then also I was going to say also what, what Maggie said about the uh, equal, equal justice. It was just, it's just amazing in 2014 that kids, don't, kids are with adults and these were for non-homicidal um, crimes. So, and they're they're in there for life. Like I think they were as young as eight eight years old in their in prison for life with adults. Um, it 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 just is unfair, and it seems like we have a lot of work to do. So for me, this trip kind of reminded me sometimes of you know how when you visit the eye doctor and you think you kind of know things are a little blurry you're not exactly seeing the world as it really is and as they put the different lenses in front of your eyes things get clearer and clearer and I've felt for many years um, that I've been on a journey of slowly having new lenses put in front of my eyes and this trip was like lots of new lenses Um, and one of the powerful, there, and there were many powerful moments for me, one was walking across the bridge in Selma, Alabama, where uh, Bloody Sunday took place. And powerful in and of itself, and I, I, sometimes I have this experience when I visit a place that I'm like, wow, I've kind of put this on a pedestal, and here we are, and you know, there's trucks roaring by us, and it's, it's just a very normal, um, like, real place. And this is a site where... Um, people showed tremendous courage and took a stand, and um, adults and families and children went out with the not knowing what would happen. They went out to take a stand for what they knew was right, Um, and they were, I mean, blasted for it and beaten up, and horrible, horrible things happened. People died. And then they went back out and did it again. And I, I was struck at that point just thinking of what it would be like to live in that time of uncertainty and be making choices that um, letting your kids go out there and making choices that you have no idea what's going to lay on the other side. And um, I, I was just struck by the courage and, um, and the ability of people to see and stand for what's right and you know, questioning myself, what would I do if I was then living then? Um, and I'm living now, and what do I do now? Like, how do I show courage now? Thank you for helping us to see and experience uh, some of the trip. Um, this will be the last question. How uh, does what you experienced uh, on this trip, how has it, how do you think it will impact your life uh, moving forward? Okay, so I went last, so I can all go first. Um, there, there's three huge ways that I've seen it already impact my life. One, um, I think I'm learning to be and sit in um, the discomfort of beginning to see through a different lens and knowing that, that is, that's what I want. And when sometimes I think the world as it was painted for me it, it's not the world as it is. And so how do I enter into that and just be 
Um, secondly, learning to take courage, like the, the people on the bridge. Like, in what ways can I um, take courage? And one, of the, one huge way for me is um, talking to other white people about what I'm learning and experiencing and, um, and you know, asking questions that help others enter into that same journey. And then I, third, I'm asking the question a lot, like almost every day, of how am I perpetuating injustice? Um, I, I think there is so much that I continue to realize is just insidious and is just there, and we take it, I take it for granted. And um, you know, as an example, I, I do a lot of hiring in my organization. How do I hire and ask questions in such a way that um, really is drawing more people like me? and asking, asking questions and seeking other people's perspectives so that I can be jolted out of, um, you know, out, of, out of a reality that isn't there. Uh, for me, um, this made me realize that I do have a past and um, it's not a dark past. Um, I'm gonna, me and my sister, we started uh, doing our genealogy and um, uh, learning more about our family, our history, and, um, and then I've been um, talking with my mom about different things, and she's told me stories that I haven't ever heard before and about my um, grandparents and great-grandparents, so um, that's one way, and then learning my connection with Maggie, <laughs> and... Um, I think also um, I've been talking to Pastor David about some things for the church to do as a whole to, so that we can all learn about each other's cultures. And um, um, I think that's important for us to, um, to know more um, and to share. And um, that's one of the reasons why I came to this church, to, to learn more about different cultures and how we fit into to God's world. Um, I, I think this trip definitely made me a lot more aware of my own um, prejudices. And um, we watched a video on the bus called The Color of Fear, which I highly recommend, which is about, it's kind of old, but it's about eight men of different races in a room who are talking about race. And it gets kind of intense at points. And um, But one man said that he you know, felt like he grew up with a, a certain sort of tape running in his head that was, you know, fed by his family and upbringing or whatever, and he's trying to develop a new tape. And for me, I found that very helpful because I feel like there is sort of the, the tape of lots of, um, lots of thoughts and ways of thinking that, I, that have, are ingrained but that I don't want there, and I'm... I'm think this trip was a big part of, of trying to develop a new tape and a new way of thinking or a new way of seeing, I guess, another way of putting it. Um, and so it's just made me so much more aware of when I have thoughts that, that are not just and that are not seeking racial righteousness, um, which is kind of what this trip is supposed to, yes, a journey toward racial righteousness. Um, but then... It also um, made me so 
grateful for our church um, in a way that I haven't felt before. I'm, I've always been grateful, but in, in a way that just felt a lot deeper um, because I realize you can go on an experience like this and it's great and you can totally just package it up and put it back on a shelf. Um, and I think it would be very easy to do if I were coming back to a an all-white church that was very comfortable and familiar to me. Um, so it made me very thankful to be coming back to a place where I know I will continue to have these kinds of conversations and experiences. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, so two things for me. First, um, just in thinking about um, relationships that I have with Caucasians, it has caused me to, um, um, specifically in two uh with two different women um, that I am friends with. Um, having gone on Sankofa, it gives me a, a new lens in a way to uh, deepen relationship. Um, and so in both instances, um, just in mentioning Sankofa and what it's all about, the questions that these women asked me made me think they would really benefit from going on this trip. I think that their lives would be changed. I think that they would learn a lot from going on this trip. Um, but they would need a partner who would be willing to, um, to engage with them in that journey. And one of the things about the trip that they, um, uh, they desire is that you partner with someone that you're going to be in relationship with so that you can continue the journey and continue the conversation. And so Susan, when she just talked, um, made me think about the second thing, which is, you know, what will I do going forward um, if my ancestors could um, be bold enough to um, enter Bloody Sunday and then leave and then come back again? Um, can I not offer the small sacrifice of getting on the bus two more times? Um, to deepen two more relationships, and so um, I if <laughs> so it was about four years like Debbie has been trying to get me on this bus for four years, and just because I just didn't want to like take the emotion of it and just the emotional struggle and entering deep and dark places. Um, and so it took me this long, and so I was like, okay, I'm done, I did it, check it off. Whoa. Okay, God's like not so much. So, um, so, um, so yeah. So, just as I listened, um, uh, listened to Susan, I just had that thought that um, maybe that's the sacrifice God is calling me to is to continue um, to help people to hear the story and to engage in the story of my people and how that has caused um, racism in our country. So the question again is how is, will your experience on Sankofa affect you going forward? And then I do not hold grudges. I haven't, I've heard a number of people say that they do so toward other races because of the transgressions of their ancestors, but I do not think that is feasible. Whether it was growing up downtown or attending a college where black people were the minority, I've always been in multicultural areas. I know things such as racism are still alive and embedded into our society. As a black man, I can educate my younger brothers and sisters that will soon learn the same. There are three individuals at my job that I pour into more than the others because they are very bright, yet they are a bit lazy. I always tell them, don't be another statistic, or when are you going to start taking school seriously? 
I've seen a huge shift in their attitude towards school as well as life in the past several months. Education is everything in this world today. Society has preconceived notions of you based on your skin, color, so be a statistic crusher. Moving forward, I will continue doing my part educating the youth. As a member of this ch church, I am intentionally, intentionally engaging in authentic community <laughs> with all people, <laughs> with people of all walks and races. And I like that our church is doing that because Revelation 7, 9 through 10, you know, pretty much says every nation, every tongue worshiping together. So, amen. Um, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I was dreading going on this trip because of the bus. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's literally an overnight, you know, on this super uncomfortable bus. And I'm not going to, I'm trying, I'm trying to like make it real. But I just want to say that um, I, I survived it and it wasn't that bad. And you can do it. Because I, I think you, a lot of you should consider going on this because it's really, really an important experience and something that I think is really worth doing. And I just wanted you to know that like, it's okay to admit that it sounds horrible, um, the, the physical experience of it. But it's, it's only three nights. You can do anything for three nights. You get a hotel, hotel room in the middle so you get to sleep. And it's just, what? Yes. And so it's, it's, it's so worth it. Uh, so I, I've asked uh, Ramelia to, to pray for you. We got to pray for them while they were on this trip that God would uh, protect and keep them. And I'd like her to pray now from her vantage point uh, for you. But I do want to echo, you'll hear about uh, this opportunity again. And um, uh, some of you I'd ask uh, just to start praying even now uh, about that next chance. The other thing to say here is that you see white and black people in front of you this morning. Uh, it, this trip is open to everybody, and uh, it, it very much does focus on the history of race in America, which has to take seriously um, uh, white and black history. Uh, but this is history that is American history, and so it, it is important and it matters to all of us. This certainly will not be the only way our church engages in conversations about racial justice, but this is a very important one. Uh, so whoever you are, if this is your church home, please do uh, prayerfully consider uh, going on this trip at some point. So, Would you stand, please, as uh, Romelia prays for us? Please bow your heads with me. Before we requisition you, O oh God, um, first want to come and just say thank you. Thank you, God, for this place and this space. Thank you, God, for this calling to this community. Thank you, God, for touching the, so the shoulder of each individual um, that has come to this church to be a part of this community. Thank you for the building of your kingdom that takes place within this fellowship. And so we just want to start by thanking you for that piece of the work that has been done to bring your kingdom here on this earth. And so, God, this morning, I thank you for these individuals that were my brothers and sisters in this journey. God, thank you for the courage that it took to get on the bus. Thank you for the courage of those who, um, um, who made the decision um, to learn more about um, the fabric of our society and the way that it has been weaved. And, Father, I thank you um, um, for this, uh, this church community 
um, that just by their presence here today says that they also care about the fabric of our society and the way it's been weaved and that there are places and opportunities for us to unweave and reweave the way things have um, typically been done in this nation. And so, God, I pray that you would just begin to touch the hearts um, of these, your people, to begin to beckon them to enter these places of lament. God, I thank you that at the cross that we don't just find lament, but we find your death and your resurrection. But we can't know your resurrection unless we enter the lament of the cross. And so, God, I thank you that you will prepare um, the hearts of these, your people, that you desire to take this journey, that they shall not fear, um, that they shall not fear entering that place of lament. For yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we shall fear no evil, for thou art present with us to guide us and to lead us and to comfort us on the way. And so, God, thank you for giving us the courage to enter places and spaces that are uncomfortable, that we might know your resurrection power. Because even in the pain of the things that you see, you also find the glory of God in the midst of these people who were broken. But they were broken before God, and he has redeemed and is yet redeeming these um, people. And so, God, I thank you that you do it not just with me as an African-American, but you do it as a race of people. And so I thank you that I cannot be fully redeemed unless I am reconciled to my white, to my Asian brothers and sisters. And so, God, I just thank you for um, the work um, that you do of reconciling us, not only to you, but to each other. And so prepare the hearts of those that you would have to take this journey Um, have them to uh, stop us and to have conversations and to talk further. But God, you lead, you guide, you direct. Let there um, be very clear word from the Lord that this is who you have called this community to be, to continue to move toward reconciliation with each other. And so God, we thank you and we believe and we stand in faith and trust that you will continue to mold us and shape us in this way and that we will Um, be careful to give you the glory, the honor, and the praise for the reconciliation that is done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Could you thank them for sharing with us today? Remain standing, please. Thanks again. You guys can grab your seat. Remain standing. Uh, Find your Bible. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm chapter 32 uh, today, and uh, we'll read this uh, passage together. Uh, Psalm chapter 32, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and this is uh, our passage. Would you read this out loud with me? Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered.
This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for these stories that we got to hear this morning, and we ask that you would, as uh, Romelia has, has prayed, um, use them uh, to bring glory to yourself, uh, surely, as always, but also uh, to stir up our own hearts, uh, that we would um, have an increased vision for the uh, reconciled community that you have called us to. As we open uh, your word, uh, we ask that you would teach us, Spirit be the translator today. Uh, from our head to our heart to our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This is the first uh, Sunday in Lent. Lent started on Wednesday with our Ash Wednesday service, so we've changed the color on the cross uh, to purple, as other churches have done as well, the color of royalty, sort of the surprising royalty that is uh, the crucified uh, king who we are uh, considering and moving toward on Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday in a few weeks uh, before we open this uh, uh, text, I want to say thank you uh, for those, uh, uh, Pastor Michelle especially, and Romelia, who led you so well last week in worship. Um, I have a, a, a part-time job uh, for our denomination. I'm the director of church planting uh, for the Central Conference, which is kind of the area of the country that our church is in. And so uh, I was away last weekend, uh, four different uh, hotels and four different nights, uh, visiting church planters in Indiana and Illinois and uh, St. Louis. And uh, I just want to report to you that God is good, uh, that new churches are being planted in uh, surprising, out-of-the-way places, uh, that we are not alone in our vision to see people come to Christ. Uh, we are not alone in meeting in uh, odd and surprising places. I got to preach on last Sunday at a, in Champaign-Urbana in a, a converted garage and uh, so if we ever, you know, feel like, oh, this is not church enough, like I can tell you some stories and you will feel great about our space. You will think this is the most awesome sanctuary uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the state of Illinois. So thank you uh, for praying for me. Those of you who are praying for me, I appreciate it. And also wanted to let you know that this coming Sunday we'll have I don't know, maybe about 20 church planters worshiping with us uh, next Sunday. Uh, I'll be helping out with the church planters training uh, where planters from around the country will be gathering here in Chicago. We'll spend about a week with them, equipping and training them for church planting, and they wanted to visit a, a younger church. So they'll be with us uh, next Sunday. So be nice-ish to them. You know, if you want to play around with them a little bit, that's fine. If you want to make them nervous about church planting, like ask them, like, are you going to do animal sacrifices like we do? Or what, like whatever. You can totally take advantage of their, you know, hopeful naivete and have them play with them. So uh, they'll be with us next week, and do, do be kind to them. Uh, this is the season of Lent in which we prepare our hearts uh, for the crucifixion of uh, Jesus as well as his resurrection. It has historically been a time where Christian people have prepared their hearts, have taken time to be introspective, to ask that God reveal to us anything that needs to be walked away from or repented of. Our passage today is a poem. It comes from the Psalms, and we have some poets in our church who would tell you that you need to read poetry different than you do a narrative. Uh, You need to read poetry different than you would a nonfiction or a novel. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there's not still a meaning or a logic to poetry. 
It just means that you come at it differently. You don't expect a linear progression of thoughts. You have to kind of step into the poem and experience the metaphors and the images and the words and the phrases. And all of a sudden, uh, the meaning and the logic of the poem becomes a little more clear. So I'm going to ask Conway to put our entire passage up on the screen here. It's going to be real little. You're going to have to squint to see it. I think we have the whole thing on, right? So this is our, our whole passage. This is the whole thing here. Now, Conway, go to the next slide where we have some of the words kind of, okay. So, so you can see here that there are some words that have common meaning or, or common emotion behind them, covered. When I kept silent, your hand was heavy on me. I acknowledged my sin, did not cover up my iniquity. I will confess you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one whose trust is in Him. When we look at the poem this way, when we pay attention to the past tense portions and the present tense portions of the poem, we can begin to see the meaning of this old psalm beginning to emerge. There is a meaning. There is a logic. The poet is pointing us in a certain direction. We're starting somewhere and going somewhere else. He's leaving one thing behind and moving to something new, something different. The poet here is King David. We don't know the circumstances of this particular poem, though it was used in corporate worship for the Israelites. They would sing these words when they came to tabernacle or to temple. And so the church over the centuries has used this poem as well, particularly during seasons of penitence like Lent. There's a repeating word in this poem that's going to help us this morning track the poet's movement. It's going to help us see where King David is pointing us to. And the word is cover. The poet uses this word or its equivalent in at least three different ways. We're going to use this word this morning and see how the poet used to live. We're going to see his decision to live differently. And then we're going to see a new way to live. So we'll use this word cover in three different ways to track what he wants us to see. So first, covered. How he used to live. There's past tense language in this poem here. David is remembering a time when he covered up his iniquity, his sin, his transgression. The Hebrew word for covered means what you think it would mean. It's similar in our language, in English. It's about concealing something. But it also carries the feeling of protecting yourself. And it's a a thorough and a complete concealing and covering. A few years ago, I knew a woman who was homeless. And regardless of the, the weather and the temperature, she always dressed in many, many layers of clothing. Uh, so many layers, in fact, that there was kind of literally this layer of protection that went with her everywhere she went. She would wear multiple socks and and gloves and hats. Um, She carried with her some traumatic memory, something that had been done to her maybe over uh, many, many years. And and this was, on some level, her way of protecting herself. This was a covering 
for her, a, a sign to everyone who she interacted with to keep a little bit of distance from her. This is the image here of covering sin, of hiding, of concealing, of protecting ourselves. It's sin, it's transgression, it's iniquity, it's guilt, it's deceit. These are the words the poet uses here. These are the things that are being covered up. And again, we don't know. Maybe it was a specific sin. Maybe David here has in mind his adultery with Bathsheba or his murder of her husband, a specific event that he had covered up. Or it could be simply a posture, a way of living like this woman I knew in response to a sinful and broken world. There are horrible things out there. There are horrible things in here. And I want to be precise about this as we start, because if we're going to follow the poet's logic, we need to be clear about our own starting points. Where is your tendency to conceal, to cover up, to hide? Is it a specific sin, failing, rebellion? Or is it a posture, a response to things that have been done to you, a sinful and broken world? This is what it looks like to live covered up, concealed, protected. The question is, uh, who is the poet covering his sin from? And he's pretty clear, he's pretty direct, it's from God. What's less clear, though, is that in our hiding from God, we also hide from one another. This is going to get a little more clear as we go along, but it's impossible for us to say, I live covered up before God and uncovered before people. It doesn't work that way. Likewise, it's impossible to say, I live uncovered before God, covered up, concealed, hidden before others. Our posture before God directly impacts our posture before others. Now, if you're not a Christian uh, this morning, uh, maybe you're not with me on, on these things. And that's, that's okay. I'm making some assumptions here about how things work, about what's true. Maybe you wouldn't think that the best place to look for wisdom in the 21st century is a very old poem in the Bible. And again, that's fair. But here is, I think, what we could agree on, regardless of faith or lack thereof. The first is this. Humanity has a deep tendency to live covered-up lives. Humanity, women and men, have a deep an abiding tendency to conceal ourselves from one another. I don't think you have to believe any particular things about faith to know this is true. Last night I was watching an interview with Bill Murray, and uh, he said this thing that I found very true and profound. He said, the hardest thing in the world to do is to be yourself. He wasn't trying to be funny. He just kind of said this thing and moved on. And I think that's right. That's true for lots of different reasons, but certainly one of the reasons that it's so hard to be yourself is that we have a deep and abiding tendency to 
hide ourselves, to conceal large portions of our history, of who we are, of what we struggle with, of what pains we've experienced from those who are even most close to us. So I think that's one reason that we could be on the same page this morning, that we tend to live uh, covered up lives. But uh, there's something else that I think we could also agree with, and that is that at moments at least, we experience a longing, a deep desire to live uncovered. We've gotten used to living concealed lives. Many of us have accepted that's just the way things are. But there are these moments when we grasp for something different. For something that might allow us to step from the shadows, to reveal a little bit of truth about ourselves. The problem is we can't leave our concealing cover behind. We can't risk complete exposure. And so we attempt to satisfy our longing for freedom and for honesty without leaving our armor behind. And so we take a drink and then another and then another to loosen up. We end up in bed with that person again. We escape into fantasies where we are desired and we are loved. And then the next day we wake up and the longing is still intact, unsatisfied, accompanied now by shame or guilt, reaffirmed in our belief that to reveal ourselves, our true selves, is to invite rejection. So we retreat back to the hiddenness, to the covering, swearing that this time we will stay concealed. And the poet says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I'm convinced that what the poet is describing here is the experience of most of the people who live in our city today. People who long for lives of freedom and vulnerability, but who have accepted the sentence of self-protection, hiddenness, their unique joys and desires and passions blunted by the covering they've wrapped around their tender and vulnerable selves. I think this is true of the executive who commutes into the city in his luxury car only to escape to the safety of the suburbs at night. It's true of the woman who passes you on the sidewalk, head lowered and eyes down, a thousand thoughts running through her mind. It's true of the young man on the corner whose swagger serves as a not quite thick enough layer of protection. It's true of us we who show up to church and nod and smile and answer questions with fine, good, busy. And like the poet, when the room gets quiet enough, we feel as though our bones are wasting away. Our strength is sapped. And something inside of us groans. In that moment, we want to confess. 
We want to speak out loud of our addiction or our sin or the effects of someone else's sin on our life. We want to get caught. We want to be seen. We want to reveal the cracks and the wounds. But again, the problem is this would involve uncovering ourselves. And that, as we have come to believe, would lead to a fate worse than our current hiddenness and isolation and guilt. This is what the poet is describing, a life where he was covered, hiding his sin and his guilt. As he reflects on his experience with sin, though, we see a shift, and he moves from talking about being covered to uncovered, There is here a decision to live differently. And given what we know about living covered and concealed lives, we should acknowledge that this is a dramatic shift. This is no small thing. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. The Hebrew word for cover, as I said, has to do with being completely and totally concealed. Well, the Hebrew words here for acknowledged and confess are almost the complete opposite of this. The language here is a full-bodied acknowledgement. It is confession that comes from the deepest place in you. It is the same language that the Bible uses to describe sexual intimacy. We need to see this very clearly. Acknowledging our sin is not a matter of peeking out from behind our self-made barriers. It's not mumbling a few words about how sorry we are. The poet's confession the sort of event that should make us uncomfortable. He's saying the sorts of things that you don't say in polite company. There is nothing clean. There's nothing religious. There's nothing particularly spiritual about this confession. I'm screwed up! I messed up! This is language that would probably involve cursing, swearing. This is ugly and earthy language that the poet is using. It's the equivalent of stripping off all of the protective layers and acknowledging this. This is who I am. This is what I have done. This is the sin that has been done to me. This is the sin I return to again and again. Then I acknowledged my sin and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Maybe this doesn't sound all that difficult to you. Some of us are very good at this. We are practiced in the way of confessing sin over and over again to God. We're good at it. It doesn't make us feel all that vulnerable or exposed. 
remember that this is a psalm meant for public and corporate worship. We must remember that our confession to God often takes place in the presence of others. And so James writes in his letter, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is where I think our palms begin to sweat. This is where our stomach turns to knots. This is where our faces begin to flush. It's as though our bodies understand what our minds often miss. That confession, robust biblical confession, is a bodily act. An act of removing every deceit and lie and barrier and falsehood and standing before God in the presence of others and acknowledging the ravages of sin on our lives. Let's not downplay how terrifying this is. Amen? Years ago, I went up to Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, to go rock climbing with some friends. And we set up our ropes and our anchors, and we climbed these uh, rock faces all morning. And then we decided that we wanted to repel. We wanted to stand at the top of a cliff and, with a rope's aid, make our way down to the bottom of the cliff. And we decided that we wanted to do this not as normal people do, as much as you can be normal and go repelling, but we wanted to do it face first. We wanted to walk off the face of this cliff and, and walk down the cliff facing the ground 100 feet below. I will let you fill in the wisdom of such a decision. The problem was... Another problem was that we couldn't uh, fix the anchors in such a way that all the slack from the rope could be taken up before we started our descent, which meant that there was a chunk of rope that was hanging free as we stepped off the face of the cliff, which meant that there was a split second where it felt as though you were not repelling but falling. If Daniel was there, he would have rigged it up a little bit better. It would have been safer. And so there's the moment of standing there on the cliff, hoping that the rope will catch. It's the moment of free fall. This is the moment of confessing our sin. It's terrifying. Because we have been let down before. It's terrifying because we are used to the concealed life. It's terrifying because no matter how constricting and stifling our self-made coverings are, no matter how tattered and ineffective they have become, no matter the longing for something different, this is the life we know understand how it works. Stepping away from our personas, stepping away from our lies, from our shallow conversations, from our arm's length friendships, stepping away from our covering 
feels like stepping away from a bunker into the line of fire, finding yourself pushed from the shadows into the piercing and scrutinizing spotlight. And yet this is exactly what the poet is describing, a terrible and terrifying act, acknowledging and confessing this is who I am. The hardest thing in the world is to be yourself. And then there's a third movement. And one, if I can invite you to come on up. There's a new way of living that the poet describes here. We come to the end of his logic and there's a surprise Poem begins, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. There's the word again, covered. The association, though, is different here. It's changed. Now it is linked with forgiveness. Throughout the psalm, we find threads back to that word covered, only now it's a covering that provides freedom and safety a place to stand and face the world without fear. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Maybe when the Israelites were using this psalm in worship, Maybe their minds went back to Genesis, to a time before the infection of sin set in, a time before Adam and Eve first hid themselves, first covered themselves. Maybe their minds were brought back to the time when Adam and Eve were able to live uncovered, unashamed, because they lived under God's perfect covering. You see, just as our longings are a constant reminder that we are not meant to live concealed lives, it's also true that we are not meant to live in vulnerable isolation. The great lie that many of us today have believed is that we have only two options. I have to keep parts of myself hidden. I could never acknowledge that. I could never admit that because if I did I would be alone these are the two options that many of us have believed we are limited to either I live concealed or I live alone I either cover up what's hard and ugly and true about my life or I will be rejected and abandoned I want to say very clearly that that is a lie. For those of us who confess Jesus, there is only one fundamental reason why we can confidently and boldly say that that is a lie. On Calvary, Jesus Christ was led to the cross. And there he was stripped of all of his clothes, of all of his dignity, and from a certain viewpoint of all of his power. In other words, he was stripped of anything that would have given him cover and protected him. There he heard, see, we told you, he's nothing. 
cross, Jesus took the full force of the devil's accusation. You're nothing. You're a liar. You let them down. You're a failure. You're a fraud. You never were good enough. You never were smart enough. You never were strong enough. But unlike any other person, these accusations could not stick to Jesus. They could not be absorbed because his was the only sinless life. For the first time in history, there was no way for the lies to attach themselves. And yet, and yet the sinless one humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, for the first time, stepped away from the Father's covering. He stepped away from His Father's covering and He chose to absorb. He chose to absorb onto His body the fury of the world's evil. He hung there between heaven and earth. The only one to truly experience the emptiness of complete and profound isolation. Only Jesus has experienced a moment completely outside the perfect covering love of the Father. And He chose it. That thing that most terrifies you and me, complete and utter rejection and isolation was experienced by Jesus in all of its perfect and vile violence. The only one who had never before had to fear rejection experienced it fully in ways none of us could ever imagine. The ravages of sin, of our sin, wrecked him and he died. We are leaning now toward his resurrection during Lent. We remember the accomplishment of his resurrection for our salvation. And so the lie, the lie that we must either live concealed or isolated has been rendered impotent and powerless by Jesus. Your sin was crucified on the cross. Your body was raised to new life with Jesus. Your enemy was defeated. It is our faith in him and in his accomplishment that allows us to step away from our pitiful and constricting coverings. The things that you have constructed and put together to protect yourself have come to bind you enslave you. So we can step away from those things and find that His arms spread wide on the cross provide for us the only covering we need. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. 
of deliverance. So let's go back to that decision to live differently, to live uncovered, the decision to step away from the shadows of sin, the decision to confess. And when we look back from the angle and the vantage point of the cross, we see that we are not stepping into dangerous and exposed isolation. The rope catches. No, when we relinquish the tattered rags that have passed for our protective covering. When we leave that behind, we step immediately into the protective embrace of our crucified Savior. He will not reject you. He will not leave you alone. He will hide you. He will protect you. He will surround you. He will heal you. He will forgive you. He will free you. He will cover you. He will cover you. He will cover you so that you can live an uncovered life. Can you imagine it just for a minute? What would it look like to live an unencumbered, unconstricted, uncovered life because you knew that you lived under the covering of the crucified and resurrected Savior? In a second, I'm going to invite you to come forward this morning and to pray. I'm going to invite you to confess with your body your need for a Savior. I'm going to invite you to confess, nothing surprising, that you're a sinner. Anyone here today who's not? I'm going to invite you to confess, to uncover before your God and before one another your need for your Father's perfect covering. Let's pray. So in a minute, I'm going to invite you to come to the cross just as a sign, as a symbol of your confession, of your acknowledgement before your Savior that you are unable to provide the covering that you need, and that the things that you have looked to for protection have come to bind you and constrict you. So let me say this morning, if if you would not consider yourself a Christian, that this would be a time, a chance to come to Jesus for the first time and simply acknowledge, I need you. I need a perfect and a sinless one who loves me, whose protection I can live under. I need to walk away. I need to be freed from everything that I have looked to. If this morning you're someone who is is struggling and is caught up with a specific area of sin, I want you to come forward and to bring that to Jesus, to bring that to the cross, to confess 
that this is something you need freedom and healing and liberation from. And if you are like uh, probably most of us this morning and have found yourself turned in on yourself, a posture of protection in a world of sin, I invite you to come forward and ask that the Holy Spirit of God give you the courage and the faith to open up, to live an uncovered life under the covering of our God. So as we're praying, I want you to come. Just stand where you are. Come up to the cross. Stand by the cross. Kneel by the cross with your body, with your life. Confess your need for a Savior again today. Whether it's for the first time. Whether you need specific liberation and healing from a sin. Whether you find yourself turned in on yourself. Don't be shy. Come, just come to the cross. Use your body. Use your feet. Stand, kneel to the cross. You have a Savior. You have a Father who desires to offer perfect covering, perfect healing, perfect forgiveness. with your mouth, with your feet, with your body. Thank you, Jesus. We are an imperfect people who serve and love a perfect God who welcomes us, who welcomes us, who welcomes us time and time and time and time and time again. I don't mean to manipulate anyone. I don't mean to coerce or to guilt anybody. The Bible testifies to us that it's with our bodies and with our mouths that we confess our need for a Savior. for those who've come forward now and I'd invite the rest of you to pray with me and Kelly will lead us in worship and I'll just ask that that those of you who are at the cross stay here as long as you want if you want prayer find myself or Pastor Michelle or someone else and we would love to pray for you specifically particularly if this morning is your first confession of Jesus we want to know and to walk beside you so God we thank you for our ability to confess we thank you that in Jesus there is no shame, that there is no guilt that there is no coercion that there is freedom we thank you that in the economy of the kingdom it's the weak who are strong that it's in uh, the acknowledgement of our brokenness and our sinfulness that we find healing and hope and forgiveness and strength And so it is my prayer for these, your people, your children, that they would know your covering today. That they would see in their mind, that they would know in their heart that they have a God whose arms reach out over them. That they have a Savior whose embrace absorbed all of the evil, all of the wrath. 
that we have a Savior who willingly accepted onto himself the consequences and the reality of our rebellion and our sin so that we would be free, so that we would be forgiven. So for any specific uh, areas of sin or addiction, I pray for your liberation and your healing and your freedom. For, for, for anyone who has found themselves turned in on themselves, trying to protect themselves, I pray that you would open them up, that they would be able to live an uncovered and an un, in a free life with you. You can do this. You can do this. and the cross is still open I'm going to ask that you leave very quietly today uh, uh, one will continue uh, to play uh, ask Pastor Michelle or I to pray for you uh, if you just need to sit for a minute please sit don't rush off uh, there's nothing we're pretty confident saying this there's nothing more important than whatever it is that God is wanting to do in you right now amen no matter how hungry you are waiting for you. There's nothing more important than that. Uh, So ushers, if you could uh, please uh, keep the doors uh, closed and that way folks can talk and laugh and connect out there. But again, stay. Come to the cross. Find someone to pray for you or just sit and be in the presence of your God. The God who sees you and who does not reject you. The God who knows all about you and will never leave you. The God who covers you. God who covers you, the God who covers you. There is no lie that can stick to you. There is no deception that can cling to you. There is nothing untrue that can lodge in you because Christ took it all for you. So don't leave this place today until you can leave confidently and boldly knowing you are loved, that you are forgiven. Amen. Receive the benediction and then go quietly in peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we give thanks to you, God, for being our covering. Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us strength and courage this Lenten season to honestly evaluate the status of our lives, to honestly look at where we have attempted to cover ourselves, protect ourselves, hide ourselves from you and from others. Spirit of God, give us a new imagination to know what a free and unencumbered and uncovered life would look like. And Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for going to the cross for us, for our salvation. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Go in peace. 
Come to the cross. Come forward for prayer.